All right, let's get back to Romans. We're on our second to last message before we get to Romans 9. Two weeks from today, we will be in Romans 9, looking at verses 1 through 8. But today we will look at Romans 8, primarily verses 28 through 34. Next week, we'll conclude with a review of 35 through 39. And then we will begin in Romans 9. We'll be back up to snuff then. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, this passage where we're going to begin in Romans 8:28 is probably one of the most common passages of the Bible. And when I mean common, I mean common that a lot of people know this passage. Christian and non-Christian. You know, non-Christians, they have their view of the Bible and they pull it out when it's beneficial. And this is one of those verses. This is one of those verses along with do not judge. Or they might even they might even hit you with the King James version and say, judge ye not. John 3:16. People don't know that verse verbatim, but they see the signs. So they know it means something. But Romans 8:28 by itself is one of the most quoted passages in the Bible by both Christian and non-Christian. And it's also one of the most under, misunderstood passages by Christian and non-Christian. So today, let's review. Let's look at Romans 8, 28 and through 30. Let's read these couple verses first. Let's answer two questions. Why is this one of the most quoted, misquoted passages? And how is it one of the most misunderstood? Beginning in Romans 8, 28, and I quote, We know that all things work together for good for those to, of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Let's start here this morning. Why is this one of the most quoted passages? Well, for different reasons, people, non-believers, non-Christians love to quote this verse, but they stop at a certain point. You see, they stop at the word good. So people will quote this and something will happen. They say, see, all things work together for the good. They don't care if it's good or bad for real. It just makes sense if it's good. All things work together for the good. And they stop at good. All things work together for the good. It sounds like a, a, a natural law of science, if you will. All things just work together for the good. This is cultural Christianity at its finest. Where you take, I mean, all uh, the cultural Christianity is essentially like a Jefferson Bible where you take the parts of it that you don't like and you take it out. And this is one of those passages where even non-believers will believe this up to the word good. So when things work out for them and because it's the Bible, it must mean God is on your side. Oh, another really popular verse is no weapon formed against you will prosper. It's another one. But that's another time. That's another time. 
This is cultural Christianity. It's to name God when they think it's good for them and to blame God when they think it's not good to them. This is at its finest. Where Christianity thanks God when it's good to them and praises God when it's good for them. And there's a difference. Because from God's perspective, what's good to us may not be the same thing as what's good for us. This passage is quoted because non-believers stop at good. They don't go to those who love God. They stop there. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. You see, because if you continue the sentence then it becomes either uh, words of indictment or words of personal decision. Once you say for those who love God, if you don't really love God, then you can't own this particular verse. You can't say, well, this, this pertains to me, this describes me, because you don't love God. And remember, Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Not say you agree that I am the true Religion. There are people watching in this room that may believe in Christianity, but you don't live for that. That's just the reality. You see, when you stop it, all things work together for the good. It makes the verse about God loving them. But the verse is about us loving God for those who love God. Why is this one of the most quoted passages for believers? Because believers also cut short. Believers stop at verse 28 and ignore verse 29. As a matter of fact, Believers stop at who love God. And we know that all things work together for those who love God. You went to church last week. You love God, don't you? Believers stop there. And forget that who are called according to his purpose. You see, when we stop after those who love God. Then what we start to think is, okay, all things work together for good of those who love God. And what that does is it justifies my personal desires. It makes my desires guarantees because all things work together for the good of those who love God. So whatever I desire and I love God means I'm guaranteed to have it because it's good to me. And therefore, my personal desires become Biblical promises that God said he would fulfill. And now all of a sudden, when God doesn't, something's wrong with him. He's not faithful. God doesn't promise a lot of the things that we desire. It doesn't mean he doesn't give them, but it doesn't mean there's a verse that guarantees you will be married. There's no verse that guarantees you will have a good marriage. 
There's no verse that guarantees you will get a promotion, have a job, have kids that will definitely grow up and be believers. There's no, there's no verse that guarantees you won't experience any major discomfort, false accusation. There's no verse that guarantees you won't get COVID. You won't experience extreme forms of racism. There's no verse that guarantees you won't be murdered or robbed or have your house broken into. There's no verses that guarantee, but these are our desires. And this verse, man, all things work together for the good of those who love God, means my personal desires become his personal promises. And that promises to disappoint. So it's a popular verse because it justifies and guarantees personal desires. This passage is quoted for the wrong reasons. Not by all, but by many. So why is this passage misunderstood then? Well, one, because people don't see this as a promise. They see it more as like a proverb. Proverbs are more sort of pithy, like brief. A lot of them, not all of them, but they're pretty much like brief statements of wisdom that are sort of fact. This is a promise. And not that Proverbs aren't promises, but this is a promise. This is a promise when God says that all things will work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That's a connection. You love God and you're called according to his purpose. His purpose. That means that he has something in store for you, the ones who love God. It's a promise. And when we ignore verse 29, we miss the promise. This is a promise. It's not just a proverb. This verse is misunderstood because people misunderstand what God means by all things. God uses all things in particular in light of the context. All things in the Greek, all means all. So it means God uses the things that are going on in our lives right now that we don't like. It doesn't mean God uses all the things that are good to us for our benefit. He doesn't need to tell us that. The fact that this is talking about God uses all things in light of the context. Remember last week we talked about groanings in verse 22. We talk about suffering. And and Romans 8, 17, and then the promise that that what we will see in the next life is greater than what we sacrifice in this life. He's saying this in the backdrop of all of those things. God doesn't have to tell us that things will work out good when they're good to us. He's telling us that the circumstances that we are going through that are difficult, God is working them out for our good because we love God according to his purpose. See, there's a difference, though, between good to us and good for us. A lot of what's good for us is just not good to us. There's no suffering that I, I mean, maybe a splinter or something. I mean, I joked two messages ago and said, listen, you can't choose your suffering. You choose to suffer. All of us would have the most suffer-free lives. Everything to die in our sleep peacefully. We'd have all the suffer-free lives and then we want to go to heaven and celebrate that there's no more suffering. 
Remember the story, the, the rich man and Lazarus? He said to him, look, in life, you had everything you wanted. You had all the good stuff. You had all the riches. You had everything. He had nothing. The dogs used to go around and lick his wounds. And now he's resting in Abraham's bosom. And now the ju- your reward is to be spending eternity in hell. And it was so bad. He said, look, can you just dip your finger in, a, in, in, a, in, in, a, in the cool of water and drop it on my tongue? You know it's bad when you just want to sip. This passage is misunderstood because of the phrase, according to his purpose. Again, if we do not look at the whole verse and just extrapolate it from its context, we will make it seem that God is promising to do the things that we think are good for us. And we're just sitting around waiting. And I'm telling you, most of the people that I know that I've spoken with that have walked away from the faith, Walk away because of this faulty logic in some way, shape or form. God is not doing something. I've been praying for a long time. The according to his purpose. Is a bridge verse bridge word to connect us to verse twenty nine. And this is the one thing. This is why even believers stop at 28. Because 29 says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's a different thing. Being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Conformed means similar in likeness and essence. So God is making people who love him. His purpose is to make us be like Jesus over time in the same way that Jesus was. So he's going to conform us to be like Jesus, which means we're going to share in Jesus sufferings, which means we're going to experience suffering in this life because it's through that suffering that we become more like Jesus. And that's what it means to be conformed to the image of his son. You're going to be made to be like Jesus. Now, now, most genuine Christians love the outcome. Right. If you're a genuine Christian in here, you want to be godly. You're disappointed at, that you don't feel like you're godly enough. Right. Genuine believers feel that way from time to time, probably more often than they should. Actually. We all want the outcome. But this is what he's talking about. The all things work together for good. That's the process. You see, he's talking about a process that produces an outcome. I'm going to bring your life through process. When you agree, when you choose to take up your cross, you can't choose what that cross is. But when you take up your cross, now God says, "Okay, I am going to use this cross and use the circumstances in your life. I'm going to use your fear, use your anger, use your anxiety. I'm going to use your sinful judgment. I'm going to use your lack of self-control. I'm going to use all of these things to help you conform to be like Jesus. And that's going to hurt. We're going to be similar in likeness, in essence. 
Think about this. If God, who created all things, decided that he had to become a human being and suffer just so that we could be experience forgiveness and reconciliation, why would any of us think that suffering is not going to be a part of the conforming for us? If God himself chose, now we're, we're talking about God who could have decided in any way he wanted to bring about salvation. People say, no, he had to die. No, he had to die because he told us he had to die. But God could have before any of us, before the, in the divine counsel of God, before all of this was established. Remember, God chose us to be in the son before he made that son. Before the divine counsel, before all that was created, God decided that the way I'm going to bring about is that we're going to suffer. And I say we because don't think the father did not suffer allowing his son to suffer. That was the way that was chosen. There is no believer that should think for any way, in any way, shape or form, that that won't be a part of what conforms us to the image of God. But when we think, hey, he works together for the good and we and we and we pick apart and we distance ourselves from these realities, then we forget that the good that's working out, the outcome of being conformed to the image of being like Jesus is describing a process that is going to be excruciating at times. Isaiah 53.3 says this about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. And there are believers who are puzzled at wondering why they're not more liked. There are believers who who are afraid to stand up for righteousness and or be missional because they don't want to be disliked. If Jesus was a man of sorrows, most certainly so will his people be to some degree. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. If God himself became a human being, it is. The God who created the very concept of obedience. The very tenets of what it means to to exercise obedience, the the very idea, the conceptual framework of obedience, that God becomes a human being and then says, I'm going to, as a human being, learn how to be obedient. We learn obedience through what we suffer. When we're afraid is when you learn how to trust. When you're afraid, that's when you have no choice but to trust God. 
when you are anxious or in physical pain, you learn how to pray, cry out to God. When you resist sin, you understand a little bit more how serious it was for God to die for that sin. We learn obedience through what we suffer. Therefore, if you want a life of no suffering, you'll have a life of no obedience. This is the system in which the God who created the concept of obedience, this is just the way he set it up. We cannot have a life that suffer free. These are just a couple ways that we, we are being conformed to the image of his son. And, and, and let's be honest, we in church, it's Sunday, right? It's not always good to us, but it's good for us. Now think about this for a second. I'm, I'm going to make it a, a, a generalization that every believer in this room has experienced a trial that was beyond what they wanted. It may be having it right now. Okay. You go through this trial. You come out of it. And then you thank God for it. I've heard people even say at some of the most gut-wrenching details that they wouldn't have changed it because of what God did in it. That's when the Lord is working. But you know, but because people are made in God's image, not just Christians, but people are made in the image of God. Even the world understands no pain, no gain. They may not attribute it to Jesus and thank him for it, but even they understand that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, the Bible says what you go through makes you less like you and more like him. This is how he conforms us to his son. Does it mean every day is gut-wrenching? No. I've had periods where like, man, this thing is kind of too easy right now. I'm waiting for the shoe to drop. Those aren't often, but there are seasons where I feel like, man, there ain't much going on right now. That means something's coming. I'm like Malcolm with the gun at the window peeking out. Some of y'all don't know about that. Don't worry about it. We are being conformed to the image of his son. And another reason why this passage is misunderstood, because people just fundamentally think it's about them. Even Christians, we just think it's about us. Listen to what it actually says. Listen to what the passage says. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Right. Then let's go to 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the, so that he would be the first offspring among many brothers and sisters. This isn't about us. It's for us, but it's not about us. This is about Jesus. And it's for us. God is including us, allowing us to be conformed to the image of Jesus so that we can spend eternity with Jesus. And we suffer now to celebrate later. But this is about his purpose. 
so that, we, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers. So that Jesus would be the firstborn of people who are like him that, 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 that live according to God's righteousness by faith after death and resurrection. You see, in the Old Testament, they live by faith, but not at the death and resurrection of God. But now we live with a different faith because we live in light of our, our faith being imputed to us. God giving us, seeing us as righteous, even though we're unrighteous because of faith in Jesus Christ. He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And the brothers and sisters are those of us who love God and are being conformed to his image. This is a hard truth to grasp. Because what it means is your life is not really about your life. And it means your trials aren't really about you. They're for you, but they're not really about you. What you're struggling with is not really about you. It's for us, but it's about him. And if God knows, listen, when they die and come be with me, man, what they got, what I got for them, they're going to suffer down there. You're going to be all right. Anybody who's, if you got kids or you babysat kids and they really wanted something, you said, no, you can't. And they upset. Listen, I, can, I thought it was just kids. Listen, I kid you not. This was two weeks ago. I'm sitting on the couch. I'm eating some food. My cat, he walks up to me, sits down in front of my face and looks up at me with eyes like, I know you're going to let me get a piece of that, right? <laughs> now, I'm the one out of the family that will give him a little scrap here and there. He knows that. So it's not uncommon for him to sit there. But I was like this. Now, I called my cat little one. So I was like, little one, no, you can't have this. He ain't budge. I said, little one, no, he ain't budge. So I sat forward and said, little one, no. And he looked at me and walked away. Went this way, came through the kitchen, came back and stood beside Betsy and was just staring at me eating. And I didn't know what was going on until I heard Betsy laugh and I saw her. I was watching something. I saw her, her, you know, when you laugh, you'd be shaking. So I look over and see her laughing. And, and then he, when he sees me look, he turns away from me and looks away. <laughs> and then I kid you now, you can't make this up. And then he looks at me at the corner of his eye like this. <laughs> and I'm like, babe, he's looking at me at the corner of his eye. She's dying laughing because she didn't even know cats do this. Like he's seriously offended. And then once I, once, once I said, little one, he looked at me and then walked away, went in the kitchen. Do you know for the next three days he was distant from me? I actually had to sit him down and have a conversation like I do with my kids and be like, little one, I'm all rubbing his back. Don't be mad at your dad. I said, no, I meant no. I'm talking to him like he's one of my kids. For him... He's being conformed to the image. He's suffering. <laughs> you are not getting some of this steak. It's not about you. Your suffering is not about you. And you need to remember what it's for. 
If we forget what it's for, then we're not going to appreciate what it is. I'm not saying we have, I'm not talking about we have a morbid or sadistic view of, or fatalistic view, no. But we have to remember what is the purpose of this? When I'm resisting sin, what is the purpose? And this is really important for believers because I know believers, we often talk in terms of can't, and that just means we, we desire it too much that we don't want to. We talk in terms, I, I just can't do it, I just can't, I'm try, I just can't. No, we just don't want to. I guarantee none of us are going to stand before God as believers and say, I can't. I just couldn't do it. Like, what? No, we get so locked into what we desire that we just don't want to give it up. And so I don't want to is so strong, it feels like I just can't. And what it means, hey, listen, and all of us have these areas, right? Some of them, some, there's, so remember when Jesus came down the mountain, right? Transfiguration. He's up there with Peter, Peter, James, and John. And, you know, he glows up. Right. You talk about being lit. So he lights up. Right. They have this experience. He comes down the mountain. There's this kid with a demon that they can't cast a demon out. So the father and Jesus have a conversation. Jesus cast a demon out and they say, why couldn't we cast it out? And what do you say? Some things come by prayer and fasting. There are some aspects, some areas of the Christian life that require more than just let me read my Bible and just pray. Some areas require more attention, more discipline. I need to fast for this one. I need to be I need to be be before the Lord and denying myself even the basic privilege of food just to cry out to him, to show him I'm dependent on him. Some of that needs that. There are areas in our life where God's like, nah, you ain't gonna just get over this one. It's easy. Some of these areas you're going to have to you're going to learn obedience to what you suffer. You got interpersonal conflict between you and somebody, you're going to learn what love really looks like. You're going to learn what it really looks like. You're going to learn what Jesus learned so that when, when Roman soldiers were crucifying, he was like, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let's see what it means to be like Jesus. People think this passage is about them and it's not, it's for them. It's for us, it's not about us. And then he goes on in, in the next passage of verses, the next 31 through 34. And we'll read from here. And he says this, what then are we? Remember, this is a review, so I'm not hitting every single thing, right? If you want to go back and hear how we explain these verses in particular, sort of more expository detail, go back on the website. This is just more of an overview again, just hitting some areas again. In verse 31, he says this, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also grant with us, grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. This is one of my favorite passages because I, this was a passage that I really appreciated. Uh, and I'm coming. This is sort of a sidebar, but I'm going to say this. This is a passage I've appreciated primarily because I felt like there was a point where I was I wasn't I knew that I was clear on what the resurrection was for. But but in the in the, the association that I was connected with, the family of churches that we were a part of, or just the, the sort of reformed world that I was in, it was always about the cross. It was the cross. The, and I get it. 
And then in this passage, he says, he says it was more than that. He says this in, in verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more has been raised. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. We need the cross and a resurrection because if, if neither of them happen, then none of this happens. And there was such a lopsided view. I was like, why do we celebrate the resurrection and Easter as if that's, no, no, no. We got to celebrate all of it. Jesus didn't think of himself as just, I'm going to die. He always said, I'm going to die and then rise from the dead. That was a connection. We must celebrate all of it. Because without either one of those, we have no hope. Now, in these verses, God, via Paul, asked five questions. We're going to look at each one of these. Verse 31, he says this. What then are we to say about these things? Well, what are the these things that he's referring to? What are the these things that he's talking about? I mean, well, could be anything from the spirit interceding, us groaning, all things work together for good. I'm sure that's included, but it's most certainly what he put in verse 29 when he lists the, the, for those he, when he says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. That's a lot of language. It's easy to breeze by, but it has significant depth, each of those terms. He says, for those he foreknew, this means God knew beforehand. Before he created the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us. God knew beforehand and he chose beforehand. It means that God... He selected in advance. He foreknew. God understood before all of this. This is an important truth because when we look at the world, everything from high gas prices to a lot of the animosity to whatever you're talking about. If God doesn't foreknow and know what's coming, then why should we trust him? You know, a couple of years ago, I can't remember what year this was. There was a guy named Harold Camping. Some of you know who this was. I know. Hey, Carl, welcome back, brother. Good to see you, Carl. Yes. I meant to say that at the beginning. It's good to see our brother back. Carl probably knows this guy, I'm sure. Harold Camping, right? Carl knows this guy. Harold Camping was a theologian, pastor, but he predicted what day the world would end. And I can't remember, I don't know what year, it was early 2000s, it was one of, the, it was one of those, I, don't, I can't remember the year. And he predicted the world would end. So people who follow him, and he had a big following, they were selling stuff. They were, I mean, and people were taking advantage of it. All the people that thought, man, I don't know, they, they were like, hey, we'll, we'll guard your stuff for you while you would have it. There were actually companies that sprouted up that will watch your stuff when God takes you to heaven. And if I wasn't a Christian, I'd have had me one of them businesses too. And I'd have went for all the Christians that got money. And this dude predicted when the end of the world would come and all of his followers believed him. And that day came and that day went. And all those people he had to apologize to. I think this happened twice with him. The first time he said he miscalculated 
The second time, it was like, man, I don't know what I'm talking about, for real. (laughs) But think about this for a second. The power of someone saying they know the future. They know what's going to happen. This is why people are drawn to like tarot cards and, and, and even, even someone like Nostradamus. Oh, you're predicting the future. Oh, anyone who knows the future gets special attention because you want to know what you don't know. There is an insatiable desire to know what you don't know. And anyone who knows what I don't know, I want to listen to them. And this is why this doctrine is important, because God foreknows everything. So listen to him. Those he foreknew, it says he predestined. Predestined just means to determine something ahead of its time or before its occurrence. He predestined. This is all scripture. Whether you like the framework in which it comes in, Calvinism, reform, whatever, this is the Bible. To determine something ahead of its time, God predestined events. He determined events to happen before they happened. Called. This is what they call effectual call, meaning the call of God is effective because people who he calls respond to it. This call essentially means you are invited. Your presence is officially requested. That God called people. So he foreknew. He knew beforehand, before all this would happen. He predestined events. Determine those events. He called people to respond to him. Then it says he also justified, and we know this a lot, right? We talked about this a lot in Romans. He justified, he pronounces a verdict of not guilty. So the people that God foreknew, predestined, he called to believe, he says, you're not guilty for sin. Remember in Revelation 1, there's, there's always these certain scenes that make you be like, dag, it's going to be crazy. Remember in Revelation 1 where John, remember, okay, first of all, John the Baptist, John, I mean, I'm sorry, the Apostle John, he, he dubbed himself as the apostle that Jesus loved. He said that quite a bit in his gospel. That's the only part I was like, you know, I wish I would have said that. But it's, it's inspired by the Spirit. So the Spirit wanted John to say that. I think I think, and again, I can't prove this at all. I think part of the reason why God wanted John to put that is because God knew he was going to have John write Revelation. And when John turned around and saw Jesus in his glory, he was so terrified he dropped to the ground. The disciple whom Jesus loved couldn't even recognize Jesus in his eternal state. He saw Jesus and saw hair made of wool and eyes and swords coming out of his mouth and eyes blazing like fire and he dropped the spirit had to pick him back up. And this was a man who was loved by God. Now you know why I'm saying this? It's because when we see God we're going to drop. And if we don't it's only because the spirit is keeping us up. Because we're going to be so aware of our wickedness as soon as we see him. I mean, if Peter, after he helped him get a a boatload of fish, if Peter said, man, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. 
if just, a, if just the presence of fish could make Peter be confronted with his sinfulness, then what are we going to say when we actually see him? Every single show that we binge watch, we're going to be like, man, we wasted time. We should have done nothing but read, pray, and preach. And even though we know that's true now, we're still not going to do it. We're going to be declared not guilty. And we're going to be aware of how guilty we are. And whatever the son's going to say, whether welcome home, like welcome, like, like good and faithful servant, well done, whether it's no, he's with me, I'm with him. Whatever it is, I don't, know the, I don't know the transition from the last breath to what happens. Paul said he wasn't allowed to tell us. But in that moment, we'll be aware of how sinful we were and how forgiven we are. That's what it means. He justified. He declares us righteous. Not because we are, but because we believe in Jesus. And he says, your belief in Jesus means that you're, I'm going to see you the way I see him. And then it says he also glorified. This means sort of to positively acknowledge. It's to recognize, to make one gloriously great. So God is going to glorify us. We talked about getting glorified bodies. We said when we see Jesus, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. We're going to change. We're going to be glorified. These are all because we believe in Jesus and we persevere to the end. Not we believe in Jesus today. Not that we never stopped believing in Jesus, but that we believe in our last breath. You look at Samson. Man, Samson's in the hall of faith. I wouldn't use that dude as an example at all. And you're laughing because you wouldn't either. But God did. You know why? Because and I think I think this is the, the reason why I actually love the story of Samson is because at that point in his life, he was his eyes were gouged out. He had been disciplined because of his sin. The last thing you think when you're enslaved, your eyes are gouged out. The last thing you think is that God loves me and will hear from me. And what does he do? He cries out to God. You know why? Because he believed that God existed and he believed that God would, 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 would reward him for diligently seeking him. And he prayed, Father, God, take. And what does God do? I'm answer that prayer. And it says he killed more Philistines in that one moment than he did his whole life. Whole life. You know why? He had faith. When he took his last breath, he believed in God. These are all realities. These are the things that God has said. What are we to say about these things? Next question, if God is for us, who is against us? What do you say to that? If, God, if this is true about what God says, then I could care less if somebody calls me woke or says something else negative. God says he's for us. So as the world starts coming in and closing in, as people start getting more and more vitriolic, as it becomes more animosity toward you because you believe and just because you want to make a stand 
or because you don't fit the narrative of the world. Because you're not afraid to stand up and as Revelation, you know, Revelation, you know, Revelation 21, 8. It says that it, this is the only time I think in the Bible, in the whole Bible, this word is used. But it, it says that the people who will not inherit the kingdom, it uses the word coward. I think it's the only time in the whole Bible. I may be wrong. I don't remember any other verse that says it. Like, I think it's the only time where he says those who will not inherit the kingdom. And he has the word coward in there. At least in, my, in the translation that I have. Maybe other, maybe other translations translate it differently. I haven't looked at the word in the Greek to see what it means, but it's translated coward. It means people who are afraid to stand up for the truth. People who are afraid to resist the temptations and the pleasures of this world for another world. That's cowardice to God. And he said, those people will not inherit the kingdom. So all of that, man, I can't, I just can't do it. That's cowardice, I think. If it remains. Because there's all of us feel like we can't do some things. If God is for us, who is against us? Remember, we're going to suffer. We're created by God. He predestined us to suffer, to be conformed to the image of his son. So we're not talking about trying to avoid suffering. We're talking about, okay, if God is for us, then what does all this mean to me? God is for us. If God is for us, then why do we care if anybody is against us? I don't mean in a rude, like, where I'm not talking about trying to make people not care about you because you think God, because that's not the will of God either. There's some people, I know some people, it's like, fam, truth should be offensive, not you. Listen, he chose us to be believers in his son before he created that son. God is for us. But you have to believe this by faith. Because if you believe it circumstantially, you'll question it. We have to learn how to believe things because God said them. And remember, faith and hope are different. I believe it because it's true. And in hope, I'm going to wait for it. If we don't, then we're going to question the things that happen to us. And honestly, because they, they happen to other people. We're going to question whether or not this is true. He asked another question, third question, verse 32. How will he not grant with us everything? How will he not also with him grant us everything? So here's the rub. Again, it's the same thing with Romans 8:28. When we read this verse, we read everything as meaning everything we want. He said, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Listen, God isn't, God doesn't always, all right, so God is out, let's just say that the world we live in from the beginning to the end is sort of like this invisible line that I have. God is outside of this line. So he can see all of time in one instance. He's outside of it. You know, he can see Jesus died over here and the end of the world is over here. And all of us, we're all somewhere around here. And God can see all of that in an instance. And there are times that he inspired the writers to write from this perspective. I'm looking at the world in terms of time. And then there are times he writes, inspires the writers to write, where God steps into time and sees the world through our perspective. And he addresses us sometimes in that way. But when God talks about these promises and grants us everything, 
if you ask, if you have his faith as his mustard seed, we always think that means in this life, in this life only. Like God does not speak about our life outside of this space-time continuum that he created. There is a life after this life for those who believe. There's a second death that Revelation 20, 11 through 15 talks about. But if you're a believer, we don't experience that death. When he says this, that he will grant with us everything with him, it's not always in this life. Like God has planned for us a whole nother life. With him and all the other people that that believed and that persevered to the end and that weren't cowards. That weren't afraid to. And by that, I don't mean perfectly. We're all cowards. We've all failed and all this. I'm not saying that we never fail. We never falter. I'm saying we persevere to the end. Shoot, God, I mean, Acts 18, God appeared to Paul and told him, you know, to go to Corinth. And he said, don't worry, I, I have people in this city. No one's going to harm you. Like Paul didn't want, he was afraid. Paul didn't want to go to Corinth because he was afraid of being physically hurt. So God had to appear to him in a vision and say, go to the city. I have people there in that city. Listen, we're all, we've all, we're all cowards on some level. We're all afraid of some things, but it shouldn't be the fundamental characteristic of a believer. It shouldn't be. We have to have faith, just like you do. If you have faith that when you die, you're going to go to heaven, you have to have faith that God is for you then in this life. You have to have faith that we have the power to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. God never promises that that would be easy. He just said it's doable. You can do it the hard way or the hard way with God. But it's going to be hard no matter what. He will grant with us everything, with him, everything. Everything does not mean what we desire in this life. With him, with Christ. And it's connected to the purposes of God. Remember, according to his purpose. So him granting with us everything is according to his purpose, not according to our desire. So don't be deceived that everything doesn't mean everything I want, but everything means everything God wants for me. And sometimes we don't even know what that is yet. I can tell you right now, I had no desire to be a pastor. People would say, man, you should get him. I was like, man, I ain't trying to hear that, man. I remember, I remember going on these, like they had these, um, the family of churches that we were in had these things called celebration. And I would go to these like events. You'd be like four days away, a group of churches. It would be like regional or something like that. And my church was, uh, I was in Gatesburg, Maryland at the time. And so, Covenant Life, and then there was a bunch of like 10 other churches that went with us to this area, some, some like, um, some place out in Pennsylvania somewhere, and we'd stay there for four days, and you'd hear teaching and all of that, and they would always have these, these lectures called, How Do I Know If I'm Called? And the pastor that I was under at the time, who's one of my best friends now, my buddy Eric, Eric would be like, hey, I'd be on my way to the gym to play ball. Yes, I was a little bit in better shape then. And so I would be like, hey, I'm going to play ball. Eric would be like, hey, hey, come to this thing. And I'd be like, what is it? How do I know if I'm called? And I said, call for what? And he'd be like, in ministry, man, come on. And I was like, to be a pastor? He was like, yeah. I was like, oh, man, nah, man, I'm trying to play ball. He's like, man, you can play ball. I said, oh, man, I want to go to this thing, man. And I would go there and sit into these things and how do I know if I'm called? And I just knew the whole time I'm not, so why am I here? I don't even want the phone number. Like, I didn't want to be there. I was like, man, I'm just, so I would sit there, I'd humor Eric for this 50 minutes and I'd go play ball. Joke's on me. 
I've been here 13 years as a pastor. Joke is on me. And even if it ended now, I still was a pastor for 13 years. I did not want to be a pastor. I had no desire. And the Lord said, I desire it. You're a pastor according to my purpose, not your own. I had no desire to do this. And here I am and wouldn't want to do anything else. What God gives us, the everything is according to his purpose. It may not be according to our desires. So be careful. And let me say, let me tell you why this is really important. And here's where it gets confusing, because we know that God wants us to do certain things to resist sin. So how come he's allowing this area to be more difficult than it needs to be? Because I can't I feel like it's harder for me to resist it. So this is where we get confused. Well, uh, wait a minute. What uh, Fear, anxiety. Complaining, sexual immorality. Isn't his purpose for me to stop? Sure. But it's also to learn obedience through what you suffer. So it may not be that his plan is that you immediately stop because he's already forgiven you in Jesus. It may be that his plan is that you learn over time how to trust him in the midst of when it's, when it's still happening. See, a lot of us think, man, how can I stop being depressed? How can I stop being anxious? The real question is, how do I glorify God when I'm depressed and when I'm anxious? That's what he's after. What does that look like? We always look at the outcome. I want to be done with this. But God is saying, what are you doing in the midst of this? That's the process. It's not that God wants us to sin, but that he'll use this sin over time to help us conform to the image of his son. This everything, he will grant with us everything in verse 32 is according to his purpose. It's not necessarily according to our desire. Verse 33 says, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. This is only one of five times, I think, in the whole New Testament that Paul uses the word elect to describe believers. And elect are simply people who are chosen, picked out, selected, It's a person chosen by God for a particular purpose. And he says, who can bring an accusation against those whom belong to God is essentially his question. And there's one person that does it. We know we can look at Zechariah 3.1 and it says this. Then he showed me the high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Revelation 12 7 through 10 tells us this. Then the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of the brethren of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. He's saying, listen, this is what Satan does. He's the accuser of the brethren. Gives us the picture that he's just like, look, look at what they did. Look, look, he just taught that and look what he did. He just asked for forgiveness of that, and look what he did. Look, he lied. Look, he watched pornography. Look. Look, they don't trust you. Look. 
They're rejecting you. Look, 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 look. He's just accusing all the time. And the father is sitting there like, um, you do know that before the foundation of the world, I knew that they would do this, right? You do realize, Satan, that even before I made you, I knew what they were going to do, and I still chose them. You do realize this, right? Like, you're not telling God anything new. It's not like God is like, what in the world are they doing? He already knew, and he said, I'm going to use this to conform them to the image of my son. Who can accuse us? Who can make an accusation against God's elect? Why? Because it's God who justifies. God said, listen, you can, t- you can talk a hole in my head all day about what they did. I've already said that they're forgiven. I'm declaring them not guilty for the sins that they commit. So he can, you can be Charlie Brown's teacher all day. That's exactly how God hears it because he says, that, those people you're talking about, they're forgiven. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? He, even a supernatural being, cannot bring an accusation against you that will change God's mind about you. And that's the purpose of an accusation, to make you think differently about the person being accused. This is, this is what gossip is. Gossip, this is what gossip and slander are. Gossip and slander are accusations against others in hopes to change you to feel negatively about them. That's why God says don't have them in the church. Gossip is you talk about people and say stuff that they do without their permission. They don't even know it. And slander is you're lying about people. And this will affect the way you see people. This will affect the way you view people. It's one of the reasons why God is not in the church. You know why? God doesn't want us to do it because he doesn't even tolerate it from a supernatural being like Satan. His accusations against us do not change the way God feels about us. And so God doesn't want us to bring accusations against each other to change the way we feel about one another. And listen, it's not because we haven't done what Satan says we did. It's because God says he's already forgiven what we've done. It's not that Satan is inaccurate in his accusations. It's just that God has already accurately accounted for them by allowing Jesus to die instead of us to receive the punishment. Who is the one that condemns? Satan does. But there's one more that condemns that we have to be careful of. One more very important adversary. First John three eighteen says this little children. It's 18 through 20. Let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and will and we'll reassure our hearts before him. And whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Oh, we condemn ourselves. We condemn ourselves a lot. We remind ourselves of who we're not more than who we are. And we have to be careful. You are not the sum of your sinfulness. You are the sum of God's forgiveness. And you have to remember that. That doesn't release us to sin. 
but it permits us to not condemn ourselves. If God says, I'm not condemning you because you're justified, then we have to fight against condemning ourselves. What do I mean by condemning ourselves? I mean, when we sin, thinking so that somehow God doesn't love us, that we withdraw from the presence of God in any way, shape, or form. So that's whether it's prayer, whether it's reading, whether it's when I ain't going to D group, whether I restrict myself from singing or lifting my hands up because I'm there. Listen, God isn't sitting there like, man, he, should, he better not lift his hands up because I know what he did yesterday. <laughs> man. Oh, I saw what he watched last night. He better put his hands down. Now, when you hear that, that's not the spirit. The spirit says, man, lift your hands up. Lift your head up. You fail, you get up. Lift your hands up. If God could tell Samuel that David is a man after his own heart, knowing that David is going to have sex with another man's wife and then arrange it so that man be murdered, before he did that, then I think you are all right. Think you okay. You all right struggling with what you're struggling with. That doesn't justify, but it means you all right. God is calling people things opposite of what we see. Think you all right. You're justified. You're justified not by sight, but by faith. And what I mean is not just in the traditional sense. I mean, we have to have faith to remember that we are justified before God and we keep going. We persevere to the end. I mean, for all intent purposes, all of us in some way, shape or form of Samson have failed eyes gouged out. Now the question is, are you going to cry out to God? Do you trust that he rewards you for seeking him, even though at times you failed him? That is the test of the believer. And it's how God conforms us to the image of his son. When there are times when we say, man, why have you forsaken me? And we still press in to the end for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, I know that each time that I preach, I run the risk of saying something wrong or dishonoring you or in some way, shape or form. Inaccurately explaining a truth that may be detrimental or crucial to our understanding. But I trust you each time you give me this responsibility that what I do say that is out of whack, that you will strike from the memory of those who are listening. But what I do say that's accurate, that you would burn in the hearts of those who genuinely belong to you. I pray that you would increase the assurance of their identity in Christ for those that will believe in you. And I pray that you would not increase the assurance of those who pretend to believe in you. Lord, may these messages have their appropriate effect that those who believe in you deepen their trust in you and those who don't are aware of the distance from you. But I don't want to be one who deceives people into thinking there's something they're not. But I definitely don't be one, want to be one who deceives people who are to you what they say, what you say we are to you. Thank you for these opportunities and this responsibility. May I continue to tread carefully, 
but honestly and passionately so that you're glorified and that we would remember that being conformed to your image and the process in which that happens is good for us, even though sometimes it's not good to us. For your glory and our good, always and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.